0: Well, I am excited to be in the pulpit and opening God's Word with you. Uh, one of the big highlights of my week is getting to do this. Uh, I still can't believe that the Lord gave me a job that I love for which I get paid. That's really awesome. And you know, I, I was telling uh, Kelsey Losey this week that the, that one of the keys to happiness in life is to find a job you would do for free and convince people to pay you for it. And uh, certainly that is my experience. Uh, I I deeply enjoy the privilege of opening God's Word to you. Um, And I want to ask you a couple questions as we get started. Uh, First of all, if I started coming to church on a regular basis dressed in one of these, what would you think? I mean, it's outerwear. Okay, what would you think? Okay, some of you, if you were in a gracious mood, would probably think, Pastor needs a vacation. Because his cheese has finally slid the rest of the way off of his cracker. Right? Um, How about this? How about if I started wearing my hat kind of like this and kind (laughs) of hanging my pants down. Okay, and saying yo a lot, right? Okay, uh... You know, you would, you would think something weird had happened, right? Uh, you know, get some, myself some baggy jeans about two sizes too big, a belt that I can cinch him way up with, you know, and my boxer shorts hanging out, some half-laced basketball shoes. Uh, you know, you would go, uh, it finally happened, he hit his midlife crisis, right? Uh, that's really odd, Right? That's really odd, because those are not the kinds of outfits. This is not the kind of outfit a nearly 40- year- old man runs around in, right? <laughs> Something has gone badly, badly wrong. You know, if I start paling around in footy pajamas, you know, this is, this is not a good indicator, right? It's appropriate if you're two and a half or three. You know, the goofy clothes and the hat on sideways, you know. That stops being appropriate 12, 13, 14 at at most, you know. Uh, Certainly you ought to put a stop to all that silliness before you turn 18, right? Never mind 40. And it's all in the category of, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. put away childish things, right? It's all in that category. And where we are today in 1 Corinthians, Paul is addressing for the second time out of three times factions and divisions within the church at Corinth. And one of the major points that he's making is that when you see factions and divisions within the church, they are evidence of a deeply immature person and a church that's just as goofy as a 40-year-old in a diaper, as a 40-year-old in baggy pants and half-laced basketball shoes, that's just as goofy as that is a believer in Christ who is growing in Christ, who is dividing the body of Christ. It's evidence of deep immaturity. And so uh, I think that maturity... It's really what he's trying to address. What does maturity look like? And it's something we as a church also need to strive for. So we want to look at what Paul says here about being spiritual, being mature, putting off things which belong to the flesh and things which belong to our infancy in Christ. Uh, so if you've got your Bible, I want you to go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. So where Paul says he starts off... Uh, For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted Apollos' water, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. Uh, Paul uses a couple terms here in the first few verses that aren't complementary and they are not meant to be. He says, first of all, that you are sarkikos, you are people of the flesh, you are fleshly. That's not a good word. It's in contrast to being spiritual. He says, in other words, you act just as you did when you were non Christians. It's not a good word to be called fleshly by the Apostle Paul. Uh, And he also says, you were infants in Christ. In other words, it's just like like saying, you know, uh, you're acting just like a baby. Christian would act. And just as we would know that you know a guy who's, let's say, 42 and drinking out of a sippy cup, something has, has gone badly wrong in his development process, Paul says, as long as you continue to fight and argue and be divided from one another, it's the spiritual equivalent of doing that at that age. It's fleshly baby Christian stuff and you need to you need to overcome that and realize exactly where you are as it relates to God he says look you're not living like the Christian you claim to be you're acting out of your natural fleshly human sinfulness rather than living by the spirit and that's not good It's not a a compliment to be called an infant in Christ. And where there is life, there ought to be growth. There ought to be maturity. If something is alive, it grows. It's only if it is dead that there is no progress, no growth. And he says, look, uh, when I came to you, I gave you milk, not solid food. He's talking about back three years ago when he planted the church. He talked to them about basic Christian life stuff. He talked to them probably about faith in Christ. That's fairly basic. You need to put your faith in Jesus Christ. You need to believe that he is Lord, that he died on the cross for your sins and was raised from the dead. You need to believe in the gospel. You need to be baptized. You need to confess your sin. You need to have assurance of your salvation, to trust God that His promises are good, that He who promised is faithful and will keep you until the day of redemption. These are basic things. Uh, He he says, you know, look, God has given you the Spirit to enable you to triumph over sin. He says, these are all the things that are basic. He says, but it's now three years later. And now I still can't talk to you and feed you with the deep things of God because you're not any more ready for them now than you were then. And there should be progress. and There should be growth. And instead, you have remained an infant messing your pants, spiritually speaking. And that is not good. It's one thing to act like a baby Christian when you are one. It's another thing to act like a baby Christian after you have been a believer for a while. And so Paul is correcting them. He says, you should have grown up spiritually since. And he's disappointed with them that there hasn't been any growth. How does he know that there's not been growth? Because they're still doing the same kinds of things that baby Christians do, which is arguing and dividing over who they like best and confusing the means of God's blessing with its causes. They're thinking, well, look, and and here's the thing. Paul Paul was traveling back to Ephesus, and as he's on the way there, he meets a guy named Apollos and Priscilla and Aquila, disciple him and set him straight, and they send him off to Corinth. And they say, go deal with those folks, they need help. And Paul was, uh, was great as a church planter, but they needed a pastor, and so they sent Apollos to be the pastor. And apparently the church is kind of prospering and growing numerically, and, and people are getting excited about what is happening. And some of them are, are starting to go, well, you know, Paul's okay, but, you know, Apollos, he's really where it's at. I mean, he's a lot more eloquent than Paul. You know, and I mean, look at what's happened in the church since Paul left. I mean, it's a lot better than it ever was. And they're starting to divide and factionalize and fight. He says, look, Paul, I came to you to plant the church. Many of you came to Christ through me. But Apollo's job was to water. Apollo's job was to enable things to prosper after i was gone but remember we're just tools that god used we're just tools that god used it's god who gave the growth and it's not that i'm important or more important than apollos it's not that apollos is more important than me all that's the wrong standard because who we ought to glorify and be excited about is god Not whoever the guy is up in front. He says, look, God is going to reward Apollos according to his labor. He's going to reward me according to mine. And we are working as God's fellow workers. But you, we're on the same team, in other words. Why are you trying to divide along lines of teams and whatever when you're on the same team? You know, why are you forming a circular firing squad? Don't do that. We're on the same team. We're all on the same team. And if God is prospering over here under this guy, fantastic. And if God uses me to plant churches, fantastic. But let's not set me in opposition to him or him in opposition to me. We're on the same team. And to be engaged in that kind of division and fighting is to prove that you are an infant in Christ. It was and it is always God who causes growth in numbers or in spiritual, spiritual depth, and it's God who rewards ministers according to their faithfulness and laboring in God's field as His servants, not as a result of the fruit that they see. Okay? Let me say that again. It's God who rewards ministers according to their faithfulness in laboring in God's field as his servants, not according to the fruitfulness that they see. Let me give you an example of that just in case you're confused by that. Consider Jonah. Jonah was the most successful prophet in the entire Old Testament. Jonah went and preached for 40 days, at the end of which the entire city of 120,000 folk all repent and turn to the living God. Tremendous results, right? Now, but what do we remember about Jonah? The fact that, A, he did not want to go, such that being whale vomit was preferable to going to Nineveh, and number two, after everybody repents, he sits outside the city hoping that God will strike them all dead anyway, (laughs) right? Well, maybe God will repent of the fact that they repented and kill them all, because that would be great, okay? Now, Jonah had a successful ministry to all outward appearance, right? but yet was he rewarded by God? No, he's rebuked continually all through the story. He's rebuked in the belly of the whale. He's rebuked by the whale. I mean, can you tell you're screwing up when you get eaten? (laughs) Something has gone sideways in the plan of God for your life when you become fish food. And And then he gets rebuked by the By the worm and by the the plant, and then finally by God himself, because he's out there praying that either God would kill all of them or kill him, one or the other, and he doesn't really care which. But nevertheless, he has, by all appearances, a phenomenally successful ministry. Now consider, on the other hand, Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. I bet he was great fun at parties. Okay, he just walked around depressed for 40 years. You know why? Because he had two converts his entire life. Preached for 40 years, he got his wife and the scribe that wrote down his prophecy, Baruch. It was it. Everybody else said, Jeremiah, go away. Shut up. Leave me alone. They went into exile, just like Jeremiah said that he would. God rewarded Jeremiah for his faithfulness, not for the results that he saw. And sometimes people within the church, both in Corinth and in our day, confuse what we see with what God sees. Amen? And we start dividing and exalting against one another what we think we see as what God values and finds important. And to the extent that both men were faithful, as Paul and Apollos both were, God will reward them both because they're on the same team. They're part of the same process of reaching people and helping them grow. And at the end of this, Paul switches metaphors from farming to, uh, to construction, from the church being like a farmer's field and the work as a harvest to the people being a building in which God dwells like the temple. So I want to look at that. He says, according to the grace God has given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation in someone else's building on it. Let each one take care how he builds on it. is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple and God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Okay, now look at this example here. Ch- this is an analogy. The, the church is a, is like a building, like a temple, and it's built on the foundation of the gospel. It's built on the foundation of the gospel. The gospel, the proclamation of that message, is what brings the church into existence. Prior to the belief in the gospel, there is no church because the church is founded on the, the belief in that message, right? As a person puts their trust in Jesus Christ, that he is God, that he died on the cross for their sins and was raised from the dead, then the church comes into existence as the body of Christ. Because you are then united with Christ as part of his body. That's what the church is. is the union of all the people who believe in Jesus Christ and have Christ as their head. And he says, so it's impossible to have any other foundation. Why? Because the only way a person becomes part of the body of Christ is through faith in Christ who is the head of the church. And so that's why the idea that you would be a believer in Jesus Christ and not a part of a church is totally foreign to the New Testament. Because you are part of the church if you are a believer in Christ. So you are or ought to be part of a church locally. Uh, The church made manifest in a group of people who similarly hold that conviction that Jesus Christ is Lord of the church and has saved them from sin and death and hell. And so he says, look, there's only this foundation. And when you plant a church, as Paul did, this is the foundation you build on, the gospel." And you can't lay any other one. But what you can do is build on that foundation with a variety of materials. And he calls some of those materials gold and silver and precious stones, wood, hay, and stubble. And the idea is is that some of these materials are durable. Some of these materials are enduring. Ladies, what would you think if uh, your your intended got down on one knee and gave you a ring he had cut out of a twig? Right? You would look at him and you'd go, Dude, you need a job. (laughs) Right? I want something more enduring than that. I don't want something you took... Chopped out of a log and then bored out in your garage with a drill. I want something more enduring, something that will last, something that symbolizes permanence. So you get a diamond, you get gold, right? Because it symbolizes not only the value of the relationship, but the enduring nature of it. And Paul says, look, here's the idea One day, we're all going to stand before the Lord. And your life will pass through the fire of God's judgment. It'll be an evaluation day. And if what you have built survives, you have a reward. And the idea is, if you have built with material that can go through the fire of God's judgment, then you have an enduring legacy. And a reward from God. Blessing. But, I'm not an expert, but what happens if you pass straw through the fire? Nothing very good, right? Boom! It just disappears. You know, wood lasts a little longer. But it's still not enduring, right? It catches fire and it goes. And both ministers and people who serve in the church can build the church up with a variety of material. And Paul is, I think, indicating to the Corinthians that some of them, what they're trying to build with on the foundation of the gospel is not going to last. And he says, look... You don't need to evaluate me. You don't need to evaluate Apollos. You don't need to evaluate all the other ministers in the church because God has an evaluation day too. And his evaluation is absolutely ruthless. If what is built is of eternal value and is glorifying to God, it survives. And if not, it all burns to ashes. And he says the person himself is going to be, is going to be, Uh, preserved but imagine your life being consumed imagine uh, let me just give you an example okay 2008 my dad lost his home building business after 35 years never missed a payment to the bank never been late not a day in 35 years, but his line of credit was canceled and called in. Six million dollars, pay us by Friday. And he couldn't pay. They shut him down. And I watched my dad have all that he had built over his entire life just gone in a moment. Watched him have his name drug through the mud and all the local papers and all that kind of thing. And to trust God through that whole process was pretty tough. Okay. But but I'll tell you what has been exciting to watch. That in all that, the things that really mattered, not the money, not the business, not the prestige that comes along with that, things that really mattered, his faith in God, his family his membership in his church and his ability to serve there, all that is undiminished. And all that will last. All of that will last. Still serves as a deacon and takes food to folks who are tornado victims and whatever else. Teaches the Bible to anybody who will hold still long enough. Right? Why? Why? Because what you build your life on is what really matters, and that was just a job. It was a way to put his kids through college. It was a way to provide, you know, for electricity and heat and all the rest of that kind of stuff. It was just a job. What really matters is who you are in Christ and what you do for Him. That's the stuff that lasts. That's all the stuff that lasts. And Paul says now there are going to be some people whose life is evaluated, whose life and whose ministry is evaluated, and everything is consumed except the foundation of their belief in Christ. I want you just to imagine this. This is like the guy whose house catches fire, and who runs out in his bathrobe and slippers. And everything in his life, everything that he owned, just consumed down to the block. Does that feel like a loss? Oh, baby. Some stuff in there you can't get back. Family pictures. Your marriage license. Your wedding photos. Flowers. Other kinds of things that had special memory to you. You you can't get them back. They're gone. And some people will go through their life having believed in Christ, having served Christ, having walked with God after a fashion, but with a great degree of selfish motives and self-will and sin. And their life will burn down to the foundation that is Jesus. And they will still be saved but they will have nothing to show for their life at the end. And that is a tragedy. Amen? I don't want to be one of those people. And Paul is talking to the Corinthians about this because he didn't want them to be those people either. And then he has a stern warning here at the end. Verse 16 and 17 Do you not know that you are God's temple and God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. And what I think he's talking about here is that there are people who undermine the gospel. You know what undermining is? It comes from warfare where you have walled cities and so forth. And what you would do is you would dig under the walls, and once you got a big enough hole underneath there, then the, the wall had nothing underneath it, and it would just collapse. And what a lot of people do is they try to replace the foundation of the gospel with something else, with self-help or with prosperity or with... Uh, you know, some sort of satisfaction of your, carnal, uh, your carnality and your, your fleshly desires and sanctify that. Uh, you know, all kinds of churches have existed that do all those kinds of things. And Paul says all these things are destructive to the church. And if you are one of the leaders who is propagating that mess, you better be careful because if you destroy God's temple... God will destroy you. God will destroy you. These are not men who will escape through the flames and simply miss out on reward. These are men, and women too in some cases, who are judged and condemned. And I believe when Paul is talking about God is going to destroy them, he means that they're going to be in hell. That they will be eternally judged. You know, Jesus said, far better for you to have an upper millstone tied around your neck and be cast into the ocean than to cause one of the little ones who love me and believe in me to stumble. And so Paul says, yeah, I'm not talking about somebody who, who tries to replace the gospel as the foundation. I'm talking about the fact that, you know, we all kind of build with a mixture of material. We have mixed motives. We have sometimes... Not entirely pure lives, even as we serve the Lord. And there's a, there's a level of stuff that's built with wood and a level of, that's built with gold. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about somebody is undermining the gospel deliberately, replacing it with something else. He says that is destructive to the temple of God and to the people of God, and you better watch out that you are not one of those people. For God's temple is holy. And he does defend it and will. And we are the people of God who make up that temple. If you preach a false gospel that leads away from the church rather than to membership in the body, you will be cut off from the body of Christ yourself. Paul says, verse 18, Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you... Thinks he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God, for it's written, He catches the wise in their craftiness, and again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours. Whether Paul, or Apollos, or Cephas, or the world, or life, or death, or the present, or the future, all are yours, and you are Christ, and Christ is God's. You know, what Paul does a lot of times is he'll, he'll, he'll have a kind of a digression. He's a preacher like me, or maybe I'm like him to the be, on my best days. Um, and you have kind of a digression. And he goes, wait a minute, now circle back around here with me. Remember this part that I said to you earlier? Come back around to that and remember. Come back around to that and remember that the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of men. And if you guys think this is a good idea, all this division that you're engaged in, remember that it's foolishness. And the things which our culture values are abhorrent in the sight of God. And so all these people in the church at Corinth are lining up under their favorite guy and carrying his banner. And they're all being divided and hating one another. And Paul says all of that is foolishness. And remember that God God judges that foolishness. God corrects that foolishness. And you need to give up the wisdom of the world that you might become wise in the sight of God. A whole lot of things that are present in their culture and in ours, the world looks at us and says, you know, if you're really smart, this is what you would do. If you're really smart, this is what you would do. You know, remember, nice guys finish last. Remember, you got to look out for number one because nobody else is going to. What's the Lord say about that? He says, he who would find his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake and the gospel will find it. Many who are last today will be first. And many who are first today will will be last. That's the wisdom of God. And the wisdom of the world is totally antithetical to what God says. And he's and so Paul is saying stop importing the world's values and thoughts and systems and plans into the church. It doesn't work the same way. God doesn't reward on the same basis. As he said to Samuel as they looked at all the sons of Jesse, don't look at the outward appearance. Man looks at the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. And what really matters is that. What really matters is the heart. Uh, All the people who think they are great and grand, God doesn't necessarily share their viewpoint. And if you are part of a congregation there's no need to start fragmenting and segmenting and factionalizing and dividing because everybody who truly preaches christ jesus and him crucified belongs to me and to you because we are all part of the body of christ and we are all part of the temple of god and jesus christ is the only chief priest and head pastor in that temple and all of us together belong to god He says, look, everything belongs to you if you're part of the body of Christ. Why? Because Jesus Christ is the heir of all things, and by extension, therefore, you own all things. So you don't have to get focused on how much money do you have today, right? Because everything belongs to me. I own it all. How do you know? Because it belongs to Jesus, and I belong to him. So if someone is a blessing to the body of Christ... I share in that blessing with him. And whoever is faithfully preaching is part of the body of Christ, right along with me. Right? I don't have to, as a pastor, I don't have to get jealous because so and so has a bigger congregation. Or this person seems to really be seeing this happen when well, this person's doing this over here. We're all part of the same team. We're all on the same side if we all preach Jesus together. If we all share the same foundation, then we all share in the same Lord who is Lord over all of our churches and over all of us. And we're all servants of the same God who loves us all and will reward according to each person, right? So there's no need to fight and factionalize and divide and hate each other. We can all come together. All right, now as this passage relates to our church, let me just say a couple things. And, and I want to be careful here so I don't have to fire myself in, in how I do this. Because there are a couple of real serious issues I want to talk to you all about. Things that I see as your pastor. I just want to encourage you, first of all, that I see lots and lots of growth in our church. I do. I see people who have had struggles in their marriage who are submitting themselves to what God would say rather than to the wisdom of the world on how to fix it. I see people who are striving to know God and to pray and to seek the Lord and to share the gospel. And all those things are good. I see lots of growth, lots of indicators of health and life. We see lots of people here in the church here who are newer in the Christian faith and just beginning to grow in it. And I want to encourage us all to continue that, to keep striving, keep growing, keep walking in God's love and coming to more and more maturity. Because maturity and growth are evidence of life and they are the norm for Christians. I think it was voltaire who said that christianity is an initial spasm followed by chronic inertia it's a very cynical view but it's one that's often true of a lot of christians amen that they get really excited when they first come to faith in christ and then after a while absolutely nothing happens and they are the same jerk they were 20 years ago but now they belong to jesus there ought to be growth, because growth is evidence of life. When your tree stops producing fruit, it's because it is dead. Now, having said that, let me just say this. As much as I am encouraged, and I really prayed over this message. I pray over every one of my messages, because it's a fearful thing to stand up here and tell everybody else what God thinks. Because you know that the Lord is going to hold you doubly accountable, because you're the one who did that. But let me just say a couple things here. Number one, how do you handle disagreements or hurt feelings or when someone sins against you? How do you handle it? Because the reality of it is in the body of Christ, we are not always all going to agree on everything. And that needs to be okay. Because we are, although we are all part of the body of Christ, we are not all the same part. Amen? And that means that we are going to naturally, just by reality, have a different perspective on things. If you are a hand, you have a different perspective of life than if you are an eye. Uh, there's just, that's just naturally going to happen. And we should not assume that we all need to share exactly the same opinion on everything. So how do you handle disagreements? If there's a disagreement that's harming the relationship, then loving confrontation and forgiveness ought to be part of the equation, at least if you are maturing and growing. You don't harbor that. If it's harming the relationship, you go to the person. And when sin happens against you, the same thing ought to happen that loving confrontation and forgiveness and reconciliation ought to be the rule. Uh, There ought to be always a view of looking toward restoration of your relationship and the way things were before the sin happened. And when we hurt one another and we realize it, we need to apologize. Apologize. And if we don't know it we need to be made aware of it by the person that we hurt. And then the person who is hurt needs to grant forgiveness. These kinds of things are markers of mature faith. And the absence of them in anybody's life is cause for great concern. Because The absence of those things is evidence of fleshly, infant Christianity. And it's not good. It's time to grow up. Now, again, let me say this with all the love of Christ. Some of y'all have trouble with this. Some of y'all have trouble with this. You get sideways with somebody or somebody sins against you and you cannot and will not forgive them. And if that's you, you need to put that on and wear it as a hat. And then you need to go to the Lord and say, Father, forgive me. I did not know what I was doing. Father, forgive me. Because I know you don't forgive me if I don't forgive other people. Help me grow up. Second thing. This is, a, this is a hard question, but this is a real question. Are you hungry to know God's Word and to seek Him in prayer? Because here's reality. i just level with you. It is in prayer that you talk to God. And it is through the Word that He talks to you by the Spirit. And so if you are not hungry to carry on that conversation with God each day, that does not say a lot of good about your spiritual life and where you are on the process of maturity. Are you hungry? Do you wake up every morning and go not, Oh, I've got to do my Bible study. Here we go been three weeks since the last time I cracked the spine on this book, but I got to get into it today. Oh, I suppose I should pray about this. Or are you, do you read your Bible and seek the Lord in prayer out of just the joy of knowing Christ who laid down His life for you? Do you want to know God because you can't wait to know Him better than you did? Are you hungry? And, you know, the the reality of it is, I heard that this is true. I'm not sure that it is. I can't prove it. But I never let the truth get in the way of a good illustration. Here's the reality. If you are hungry enough long enough, you eventually stop being hungry. You can be starving to death and not feel a hunger pang. And with people who have actually been starving, they have to feed them very slowly but they have to force feed them many times because they don't they have trained their body not to feel hungry anymore and i suspect that that is the case with some of us that we have trained ourselves not to be hungry for god's word we've trained ourselves not to be hungry and so what you may have to do is in a sense force feed yourself for a while and say, well, I'm going to do it as a discipline. I want to do it out of joy. But until that comes, I'm going to do it as a discipline. I'm going to seek the Lord in His Word. I'm going to seek the Lord in prayer. I'm going to come to Sunday school. I'm going to join a small group. I'm going to get the Bible app for my Kindle Fire. And I'm going to read it every morning so that I can, until I can enjoy it. And then I'm going to do it out of joy. But here's the thing, and this is, this is what I want to tell you as your pastor. I love you, and I have devoted my life to serving Christ in the church so that I might serve you. And one of the things I see in our church that bothers me is lots of people who are willing to come to church on a weekly basis or twice a month or three times a month or whatever it is, and some of you are just not that hungry. And it scares me for you. And I call out to God on your behalf through the week. Because I'm worried about where that will lead in your life. And I want on the day, of, on the great day, when you stand before God, for there to be more left of your life than the foundation of the gospel and belief in Jesus. Amen? I want to see that. I want to hear God say, not just of me, although, I'll be honest, this primary, (laughs) not just of me, well done, but of all of you. Well done, good and faithful servant. And one of the things that we have to build our life with is the basic communication tools He has given us of talking to Him through prayer and hearing from Him through the Word. If you're not hungry, that's cause for concern. Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we are those who have believed the good news. We are those who have had our salvation purchased for us through the blood of Christ. We are those in whom the Holy Spirit dwells and who builds us together into the temple of God. We are those who have been called out of darkness into the marvelous light of Jesus Christ, who have been bought with the blood of Christ from the kingdom of the evil one and brought into the kingdom of the one that you love, your Son. Father, I pray that we would have a deep hunger to know and to love and obey and to mature and grow in Jesus Christ. Father, it scares me for people whenever I see them not that interested in spiritual things. And Father, I confess that sometimes that, on that day that that is me. And sometimes it's some of these who are sitting here listening to me pray. Father, I pray that you would break us, that you would move us toward yourself by your Holy Spirit, that we might build upon the foundation of the gospel that you have laid in our lives with gold and silver and precious stones, with things that will last, with things that will withstand the fire of your evaluation on the great day. Because, Father, more than anything, I want for us to know you, and to love you and to give you praise because you alone you alone father are worthy you are worthy of all praise and all glory and all honor in all of our lives father there is no one like you in all the in all the world who would send forth his son for me and for these and father i do pray that you would by your grace Help us, because we so need it. Help us to grow in maturity and to walk with you in holiness, we pray in Jesus' name.